Future Sense is a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name, broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Hosted by Nick Jeans and well-known international futurist Steve McDonald, Future Sense provides a fresh, deep analysis of global trends and emergent technologies. How can we identify the layers of growth, personally, socially, and globally? What are the signs missed, the truths being denied? Science, history, politics, psychology, ancient civilizations, alien contact, the new psychedelic revolution, cryptocurrency, and other disruptive and distributed technologies, and much more. This is Future Sense. You're tuned to Future Sense here on Bay FM 99.9. It's uh, Monday the 30th of March, although we are recording, as I've said, on the 29th in remote locations from each other and from the station during this coronavirus uh, situation that we're in. You're with Nick Jeans, myself, and my co-host Steve McDonald here. And remember that uh, you can listen to our podcast, our edited podcast, within about 24 hours of the broadcast of this show uh, through futuresense.it or from your podcast platform. We've been discussing what we see as a planetary reboot that's currently underway. In the first part of today's show, we discussed the health impact, and we're now going to have a look at the economic impact. And it's very, very clear that most people in the world, apart from a very small percentage, will not be touched by the coronavirus. However, pretty much everybody is going to be touched, and most of us have already been touched in some way by the economic impact associated with the response. It's overwhelmingly uh, far, far bigger in terms of its uh, effect on on the global population than the actual health impact of the virus. And we have discussed on previous shows that uh, we we have seen this all along as somewhat of an overreaction, Mm. uh, rather an on-off kind of a response instead of a measured response. And uh, that, of course, has been uh, partially due at least to a lack of preparation for a crisis such as this. We do see now, though, that it's shaping up as a global shift in terms of changing spending priorities and a potential redistribution of wealth. So it is uh, definitely a cloud with a silver lining, and it may end up being tremendously beneficial in terms of progressing the values shift and the global consciousness shift that's underway. Mm. And for many people, they would find that a very surprising thing to say, but it is happening. I certainly was extremely surprised here in Australia when quite quickly, one of the few things were done quickly by our current government, um, was an allocation of, of some money to, to everybody who is, uh, is going to be in need or losing jobs and so forth. And that's expanded. And the amount of money that's involved is quite extraordinary. And I find, and I think many people find very surprising that the money is... Uh, looking like going to the everyday man and woman and to small businesses as well as some of the larger corporations. And this is a government that has resisted continual attempts to try and improve social security payments here in Australia over the last few years. So it really is a a 180-degree turnaround and quite surprising and wonderful to see, actually. The economic impact is already so huge that a return to work at the earliest practical opportunity is very likely, as we've already seen happen in China. So China was faced with a, a critical decision where the, uh, the outbreak obviously uh, led to a considerable shutdown. And then while the, an economy is shut down, of course, the longer you leave it, the, the more difficult it gets to dig yourself out of the hole once you resume work. And so they had to make a call. They seem to make that call very effectively. And uh, there don't seem to have been any repercussions of the timing of their return to work. And I think we can expect to see a similar pattern happen here in the West. Mm. 
there are continuing predictions of shutdowns for six to 18 months, but this is simply ridiculous. There is no way that we can uh, last the economic impacts of six to 18 months of people being out of work. So uh, I would predict that we'll see a similar pattern to what we've seen in China happening in the West. And uh, already some of the medical experts are saying that we should see conditions easing off in terms of the health impact within two to three weeks. And I think we'll we'll start to see movement towards reactivating the economy and reactivating our workforce uh, somewhere towards the end of that time frame as well. Well, the big thing, of course, has happened and a little hard to uh, untangle, certainly for me, not an economist, is the position of the Federal Reserve in the, Ameri- in the US and Federal Reserves around the world. So we're going to give a bit of an update of what, what is happening there and how this wealth is uh, looking like it may be redistributed. Yeah, so just uh, to give a sense of how serious this is from an economic economic point of view, the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of St. Louis President James Bullard was quoted recently as predicting that under the current conditions with the shutdown in place, the US unemployment rate could hit 30% in the second quarter and there could be an unprecedented 50% drop in gross domestic product. And as I said, the longer the shutdown continues, the more serious these issues get. So it's very, very likely that we're going to see prompt action uh, in terms of turning around the economic situation as soon as that is is deemed practical in relation to the health risk. Uh, Here in Australia, uh, our government has just announced a $1.1 billion funding boost, which is going to address the issues of mental health, domestic violence, Medicare, which is our national healthcare system here, and also emergency food supplies. And we can say without a doubt that this spending would not have happened if it had not been for the coronavirus crisis. It's very good to see that spending uh, allocated also going to be allocated for domestic violence problems because it's already there has been reporting uh, anecdotally of more issues there with people locked down together and clearly that's not a good place to be if you are already in a highly dysfunctional relationship so good to see some support there from the government here yeah and we can of course relate all of these issues back to the big picture value shift that is underway and the change profile which takes us through a values regression so a slipping backwards to old values and of course uh, that raises old problems and particularly old unresolved problems and these flare-ups of uh, domestic violence and those sorts of things are a sign of people slipping backwards into more simplistic values, more raw emotional approaches to problem solving. And uh, as the global paradigm shift progresses, then we should see an easing of these issues as the new values really start to take effect. And part of what we're seeing with these spending patterns is reflecting the early emergence of new values in terms of spending priorities. Mm. So to really understand what's going on economically on a global level, we need to just have a quick look at a few facts. And they are first and foremost that our global economic system has periodically crashed during this scientific industrial paradigm. So the, the layer five consciousness way of problem solving is to experiment push limits and usually to push those limits until we fail and then to pull back from the failure and knowing where the limits are to continue to forward in the same pattern and we've seen this pattern playing out right across society but particularly in our stock markets with periodic crashes booms and busts Uh, and that of course is not sustainable we had the uh, tremendously 
impactful 2008 global financial crisis, uh, which resulted in a government bailout, which really was a bit of an illusion because the, the money that was spent resolving those problems, uh, which, which were primarily within banks and financial institutions, uh, really was kind of grabbed or created out of thin air. So uh, anybody who understood economics knew that it was a short-term fix, but it was only going to lead to the same problem resurfacing further down the track, and, and that's really what we're seeing now. Uh, the current global economic system, the way that it operates, is simply unsustainable due to high and growing debt levels, and the control knobs of monetary and fiscal policy have been turned as far as they can go, essentially. So it's just like there's nothing left uh, in terms of our capacity to respond to these problems. The European Union has been in crisis since 2009, again due to high debt levels within member countries, and uh, they've included Greece and Ireland, Portugal, Spain and Cyprus. We've seen the uh, United Kingdom choose to bail out of the European Union (laughs) through Brexit, uh, and that has raised fears of the entire EU breaking up, uh, but that doesn't seem to be imminent at this stage. And essentially, another global financial crisis has been overdue, and uh, many people, including me, expected it to happen a couple of years ago, and we've been kind of sitting and waiting uh, just to see when it was uh, was going to be triggered. And so this crisis that we're in now, this economic crisis, was coming anyway. The, the economic crisis has not been created by the coronavirus. However, the global response to the coronavirus has ignited the crisis that was just sitting there waiting to catch a light. Yeah. One particular uh, thing to take note at the moment is that the declaration of this global crisis as a real emergency enables special measures to be put in place. And essentially, what we're about to see is the global economic system put on life support. So it it kind of has parallels to the actual virus itself, where when things get critical, people have to be put on life support on respirators. And uh, we're seeing the respirators being rolled out as we speak for the economic system. So ultimately, what needs to happen during this period of global transition is we ultimately need an economic system that is designed from a level six or preferably a level seven uh, level of consciousness. And certainly I think that what we're seeing in blockchain and cryptocurrency represents a new paradigm version, a potential new paradigm version of our global economic system. And I think somewhere down the track, as those uh, blockchain-based systems evolve, we will see a viable new economic system emerge. But right at the moment where we're stuck with what we've got and uh, we need to kind of prop it up as best that we can and that propping up mechanism that is being put in place worldwide to one uh, one way or the other is as we're saying here the money is largely going but not exclusively to what's also called the real economy to people to people who've lost their jobs to individuals on uh, benefits to small businesses that are collapsing and so on as well as uh, likely to larger corporations too but it's uh, different to the 2008 crisis in particular, the money has got not going to rescue and prop up those private banks in the same way. It's a different situation. But it does raise a question whether this is just uh, pushing back the sort of ultimate collapse of the whole system just a little bit down the, further down the track, just kicking the can down the road a bit. 
Look, essentially it is, but it's an essential kicking of the can. Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth just uh, taking a a close look at what the US Federal Reserve has recently announced and perhaps the legislation that sits behind that, because I think we'll see similar strategies unveiled in other countries pretty soon Mm -hmm. where emergency measures are put in place and uh, extraordinary decisions are made and extraordinary actions are made in you know in terms of propping up our economy so let me just read from an article from uh, a publication called intelligencer and the headline is the fed's response to covid19 is impressive and alarming hmm. Earlier this week, congressional Democrats and Republicans were locked in contentious negotiations over what the American public should ask of corporations before bailing them out. Conservatives contended that Uncle Sam should not interfere with these private enterprises' internal affairs. The government's failure to prepare for this pandemic and the heavy-handed social distancing measures that its under-preparation necessitated robbed these companies of expected revenue. And thus, the state has an obligation to extend cheap credit to corporate America, no strings attached. And just skipping ahead in the article, I'm just going to pick out a couple of of relevant uh, pieces of information here. So it's talking about the debate that was happening in Parliament. And what's really, really interesting is that the U.S. Federal Reserve sits apart from the government of the U.S. It's Mm. it's an independent organisation. And it has the capacity to act without the government's permission, and it has just done that. Mm. And this article says, uh, while these factions were arguing, the Federal Reserve went ahead and started lending money directly to private corporations with no significant conditions. Mm. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit further now, and uh, it's talking about uh, the Fed trying to solve this problem. And it says, this problem could only be significantly mitigated by providing cheap public credit directly to private firms. Now, this stands apart from what happened during the the GFC, as Nick just mentioned, where the bailout, the government bailout that happened was primarily paid to banks and other financial institutions. But here we're talking about money or credit at least being extended directly to private firms. And back to the article, it says, which is traditionally the kind of thing that requires the approval of our government's elected branches. But the economy was imploding and Congress was dilly-dallying and so the Fed just went ahead and established a primary market corporate credit facility, which is a new institution. Mm. And uh, skipping ahead in the article a little little bit further, it says a few lay news consumers took much interest in this happening, uh, but the terms were far more lax than progressives had been calling for. The public will assume the risk of lending to embattled corporations without securing any significant claim on their future profits or durable influence over their operations. Meanwhile, discretion over which businesses should and should not be bailed out was largely outsourced to the unelected bureaucrats at the central bank. And this, of course, leaving the central bank in charge of divvying up that credit between individual corporations, small businesses and state governments. So essentially the Federal Reserve is choosing where the money goes and not the US government. Yeah. Uh, the uh, As I mentioned, and, and it's also raised in this article here, during the 2008 financial crisis, uh, the Federal Reserve came to the rescue. Uh, and at that time, this constituted nothing less than an epochal reformation of global economic governance executed with virtually no democratic input or even public awareness. So now we're seeing the second mm. event where uh, this uh, kind of economic 
governance is being exercised without uh, democratic input. Mm, might just add too that it does have these decisions made by the Fed do have geopolitical consequences, which this article also mentions. And in fact, uh, the Fed has literally really made uh, some incursions into making foreign policy, generally speaking, to suit uh, the agenda that they're, they're running. It's very interesting, and you know, particularly when we reflect on the division within uh, the US government at the moment between the Democrats and the Republicans mm. and, and the bitter battle that's been going on there, which, uh, of course, has been at the expense of managing the country. We might just have a quick look at the uh, legislation and just read what it says and uh, this is uh, of course all focused on the United States but I, I do expect that we'll see similar uh, emergency measures taken by other countries and, and it's important to remember that the only reason that this is possible now is because the whole coronavirus episode has become an acknowledged and declared international crisis yep. so this is why we're able to take these unusual measures. So I'm looking now at the US Federal Reserve Act Section 13. And I think, Nick, you had to look at the uh, the history of this, and it, it dates from when? Uh, from 1913, actually, which is which is interesting, which is around the time, I'm not sure the exact date, but when the Federal Reserve, as you mentioned earlier, became really an independent body. It's not, it's not a political body. It's not a government body. It is a private, uh, a private uh, reserve bank. Operation. Yeah, so uh, interesting uh, act passed in 1913, and it's section 13, paragraph 3, which we're going to look at. And it's headed discounts for individuals, partnerships, and corporations. I'm quoting now from this act. In unusual and exigent circumstances, the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System, by the affirmative vote of not less than five members, may authorise any Federal Reserve Bank during such periods as the said board may determine at rates established in accordance with the provisions of Section 14 of this Act to discount for any participant in any program or facility with broad-based eligibility notes, drafts and bills of exchange when such notes, drafts and bills of exchange are endorsed or otherwise secured to the satisfaction of the Federal Reserve Bank. I hope you, you can understand that out there. <laughs> so basically, basically it's saying that the, this uh, Act... Uh, of uh, US Parliament authorised the Federal Reserve to make the decision to vote on it and act on uh, discounting, and which which can be uh, interpreted to mean extending credit or uh, or you know financially bailing out organisations. Well, there's a there's a, a simpler explanation in this piece here, uh, section thirteen three meant to sanction direct Federal Reserve lending to the real economy rather than simply to a weakened financial sector in emergency circumstances. It was a Depression-era uh, history that provides insights into the evolving role of the Federal Reserve as an emergency provider of, of uh, liquidity. So that basically it's saying that this act gives the Fed, as you're saying, the, uh, the, the power to lend money where it feels that it can be best applied. Yeah, the Act goes on to say that uh, the Federal Reserve has to report to the uh, US Government Committee on Banking, Housing and Urban Affairs, and that, that's in the Senate, and then the Committee on Financial Services in the House of Representatives uh, within seven days of taking the action. So, uh, so that, that's fa I find that fascinating that uh, the Federal Reserve has an independent power to, to basically take... Um, economic decisions and action that has global consequences without, without first Absolutely. checking in with the US government. Yeah. Uh, I've now got another article here from a 
publication, an online publication called marketwatch.com, and it's giving a breakdown of the expanded rescue package, which the Federal Reserve has already started enacting. And uh, it's, it's quite lengthy, so I'm just going to really skip through and uh, just uh, read out the headings. So it, it talks about uh, changing interest rates, although there's not enough, there's not much uh, potential to do that at the moment because they're so low. Um, to uh, purchase bonds, to um, set up uh, primary dealer credit facilities, to um, set up primary market corporate credit facilities, which they've just done, secondary market corporate credit facilities, term asset-backed securities, loans, uh, municipal bonds, uh, currency swap lines, uh, interbank uh, exchange arrangements. And so it's very, very broad ranging. Uh, there's a lot of sort of levers that they can use there to uh, to take action and bring uh, some relief to this economic crisis that we're facing. Mm. Well, as the, uh, the first line in this article says, the Federal Reserve entered uncharted waters this week, opening its vault to inverted commas, unlimited bond purchases as global markets convulse businesses shutter and workers lose jobs in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. So basically they've got carte blanche within the small restrictions of having to report to government and so forth to basically deal out a, a lot of money. And uh, is this a redistribution of wealth? I mean, I know you're, you're seeing like this and I'm, I'm excited by that, uh, that possibility that that's actually what's happening here. And um, I guess we'll, we'll see, but it looks, uh, it looks by, all, um, by all accounts from this research that that's what's happening. Yeah, I, the way that this situation is played out, it really has to be because of the mm-hmm. shutdown, which is, is right down at grassroots level. If the economic problems that are being created by people you know, not having income uh, aren't addressed directly, then they're only going to grow over time and create major, major issues for Well, there's going to be chaos, for, for isn't there, really? Countries. Exactly, exactly. So there really is no other option than to re, you know redistributing wealth down to the grassroots, which is very much in line with the general themes of the global paradigm shift that we're in the middle of right now. Is is a, a redistribution of power, and of course you know money being a, a key um, mode of power expression in our society. <laughs> Absolutely. So it's very very interesting. Uh, and again, you know, going back to what I said at the the start of the the first segment today. Uh, that what I'm seeing is an alignment of intentions and goals from completely different value systems. It's like everybody, mm. no matter which value system they're coming from, they're looking at the problem that we're facing, uh, you know, as a as an entire world, and they're coming up with the same uh, solutions. Mm. You know, they're saying, okay, we need more global coordination. We need to uh, redistribute wealth to solve this problem. Mm-hmm. It's very, very interesting indeed. Yeah, very and, good. and you know. Just a few weeks ago, a month yeah. or two ago, there's no way we would have uh, imagined that this would be happening and these people who are making these decisions would have been doing what they're doing. It's very, yeah. very interesting indeed. Absolutely. We'll take a, uh, another break here on Future Sense. We'll be back uh, for the last little segment here on BayFM 99.9. You're tuned with Steve McDonald and Nick Jeans on this program and you can tune in, of course, to the podcast within 24 hours through futuresense.it. Hello out there to all of you in the world who are listening and hope you're looking after after yourself, staying home, staying safe, and stay tuned to BayFM. You're tuned to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. Engage, emerge, activate, and spiral up. 
You're listening to Future Sense with Nick Jeans and Steve McDonald. And today we're talking about what is essentially a, a planetary reboot. And in this segment, we've been looking at the economic impact. And what we're seeing now in terms of the proposed bailout uh, under emergency measures is essentially a layer five solution. That, that is an old paradigm scientific industrial mindset solution. Uh, which clearly won't be sustainable like the previous uh, similar solutions that we've seen from the 2008 GFC, etc. However, it is an essential crutch that is going to keep our economy, our old-fashioned economy, staggering along for a few more years. And uh, typically, old paradigm thinking is short-term, and certainly within the corporate world, it's rare to come across an organisation that has any kind of detailed plan that runs further than sort of three to five years into the future. So uh, it's a reasonable bet that uh, whatever measures are taken now may sustain us for another sort of three to five years before we have to perhaps make some more critical changes. Mm. Um, But the implications, of course, of the the present measures remain to be seen. I just want to finish off this uh, economic discussion now by reading out a couple of predictions from Armstrong Economics. Martin Armstrong has a very sophisticated computer program which has a really, really good record of predicting the movements of uh, the global economy. And, of course, he predicted a, an economic turning point on the uh, 8th of January this year. Mm. And uh, around about that time, decisions were being made that uh, resulted in this economic crisis that we're facing mm. right now. So he called that uh, accurately. And, and um, it's not him personally making these calls. Of course, it's, it's a very, very sophisticated computer program that he's put together over many, many years, which incidentally is in sync with the solar cycles, which I find really interesting. So his computer program is predicting a few milestones in the future, which I'm going to read out because they give us some sense of how long it might be between now and when we actually do stand up a completely new paradigm global economic system. So his computer algorithm is predicting in 2024 that world financial growth will culminate. And then in 2029, that we may see the collapse of the European Union. In 2032, his computer program is predicting the end of a longer-term economic confidence model wave, which signals the end of private sector dominance. In other words, the end of corporate dominance over our global economy. And also in 2032, a change in the global standard currency, which is, of course, right now the US dollar. So that's uh, 2032, uh, 12 years away. And then 2035, his algorithm is predicting that the global economy will bottom out. And by 2037, that global economic growth will resume. So I would draw from those milestones that... Between now and 2037, we will see the gradual emergence of a new and better and more sustainable global economic system. However, we will see uh, you know, the, the current system staggering along in various forms, probably right up until around uh, at least 2032, I would say. So it's, it's got a few years of life in it yet. Mm. We're going to finish today with... Um a quote from Charles Eisenstein. Charles uh, wrote his 2011 book, which he's most well known for, called Sacred Economics as part of the, the new economy movement. The book revolves around the theme of how the current monetary system, based on interest and usury, 
uh, along with the abandonment of the gift economy, as he calls it, has led to social alienation, competition and need for an economic system predicated on continuous growth and so on, stuff that we know so well. This is a lovely piece which is just uh, written a few days ago as part of uh, his, uh, his essay collection on his website, charleseisenstein.org. And uh, I'm going to read this for you because I think it's very relevant to today's discussion and ends in a beautiful way, I think, too. For years, normality has been stretched nearly to its breaking point. A rope pulled tighter and tighter, waiting for a, a nip of the black swan's beak to snap it in two. Now that the rope has snapped, do we tie its ends back together or shall we undo its dangling braids still further to see what we might weave from them? COVID-19 is showing us that when humanity is united in common cause, phenomenally rapid change is possible. None of the world's problems are technically difficult to solve. They originate in human disagreement. In, in coherency, however, humanity's creative powers are boundless. A few months ago, a proposal to halt commercial air travel would have seemed preposterous. Likewise, for the radical changes we are making in our social behaviour, economy, and the role of government in our lives. COVID demonstrates the power of our collective will when we agree on what is important. What else might we achieve in coherency? What do we want to achieve and what world shall we create? That is always the next question when anyone awakens to their power. COVID-19 is like a rehab intervention that breaks the addictive hold of normality. To interrupt a habit is to make it visible. When the crisis subsides, we might have occasion to ask whether we want to return to normal or whether there might be something we've seen during this break in the routines that we want to bring into the future. We might ask, after so many have lost their jobs, whether all of them are the jobs the world most needs. We might ask, having done without it for a while, whether we really need so much air travel, Disney World vacations or trade shows. What parts of the economy will we want to restore and what parts might we choose to let go of? And on a darker note, what among the things that are being taken away right now, civil liberties, freedom of assembly, sovereignty over our bodies, in-person gatherings, hugs, handshakes and public life, might we need to exert intentional political and personal will to restore? For most of my life, he says, I've had the feeling that humanity was nearing a crossroads. Always the crisis, the collapse, the break was imminent just around the bend. We stop, hardly able to believe that now it is happening, hardly able to believe after years of confinement to the road of our predecessors that now we finally have a choice. We are right to stop, stunned at the newness of our situation because of the hundred paths that radiate out in front of us. Some lead in the same direction we've already been headed. Some lead to hell on earth and some lead to a world more healed and more beautiful than we ever have dared to believe possible. Very nice. Thanks, Nick. And let's take this time out that we have at the moment to focus on resetting ourselves and thinking about how we're going to create a different world when we swing back into action. And I, I do uh, acknowledge everything that Charles Eisenstein has said there, but I, I do also know that the reality of this global shift is that it will play out over an extended period mm. of, I believe, 
15 to 20 years. Mm. And so we need to become resilient. We need to build strong communities that are as self-supporting as possible. Yeah. And we need to get used to change. Uh, it, you know, change is the new normal. Thank you so much for joining us here on Future Sense. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Nick. And uh, we'll be with you next week and stay tuned uh, in the next 24 hours for the edited podcast. Please pass it around if you enjoy it and you find value here. You've been listening to Future Sense, a podcast edited from the radio show of the same name broadcast on Bay FM in Byron Bay, Australia at bayfm.org. Future Sense is available on iTunes and SoundCloud. The future is here now. It's just not evenly distributed.